0: Hi everybody and welcome to Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales and I have to tell you I am very grateful to you for finding us here on robsonsworld.com We have mentioned to you that uh, this is where we were going to be and we thank you for coming and checking us out It's very easy to find, as I'm sure you already know by now So, where are we starting tonight? Well, the word grizzly... Needs to be spelled in capital letters tonight, because throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, human beings have been more than capable of finding new horrific ways to deter anybody messing with them, to punish somebody who has trespassed a Upon them, transgressors, witches, warlocks, villains, murderers, rapists, and to be honest, they've even managed to torture small children who have stolen a loaf of bread. Now, we know a lot of the old-fashioned stonings, the hangings, setting people on fire, yeah. We know all about them, we've covered them fairly comprehensively right here on the grizzly tail. However, what if somebody really, really crosses the line? What if they've stolen your horse, assaulted your wife, and maybe, like witches were said to have done, look at you in a funny way, and therefore your crops fail for the next three years. There's been some particularly extreme and brutal ways of torturing people. And when you torture people, you ultimately do want them to die. That's part of the torture. You get information from them, maybe. But deep down, death is where you want to take these people. Now, we all know that there are many horrible tortures from ancient history that have disappeared But there are still a number of these torture methods available in various parts of the world. Now, I know you've heard of hanging, of course. It was a punishment here in Britain for many, many years. However, there is a twist to that. And it is a gadget, which is essentially just a pulley... For those of you that maybe work in warehouses or down the docks, or perhaps you're a lorry driver and you use pulleys to secure your load. It is hangly, I suppose, but it was known back then as the upright jerker. Now, depending on how heavy somebody is, to hang somebody is a clart. It's a lot of faff. It's getting the right rope. It's building a huge gallows. It's putting in a trapdoor, and making sure that it opens at the right time, that it has the, the right kind of hinge on it. So is there a natural solution? And the answer is yes. You hang people backwards on an upright jerker. Now, think about this. You see all of that, complication when you're trying to hang somebody however this way it's very simple you have somebody with a noose around their neck sitting on the floor maybe sitting on the floor and all you need is the bow of a tree that's high enough up and what you do is you attach a whole load of really super heavy weights far heavier than the individual and you drop them off the bow of the tree The rope jerks upwards, whisking the condemned person into the air, and it would work more often than not. Sometimes it literally threw the person over the bow of the tree and slammed them up against the tree. Not pleasant, but not fatal. So then they'd have to do the whole thing again. But the upright jerker was used for years because it was easier, you could do it automatically, you didn't have to wait until you built some fancy gadget. Now, if you're looking for a horrible and uh, torture method that will make your skin crawl, and maybe uh, arguably one of the worst tortures ever, the Greeks did a thing called scaphism. It was also used by the Persians because they were just crazy people when it came to executions. The accused was trapped between two boats or placed tightly jammed in a hollowed-out tree trunk. You see how weird it is even before you start? And then they are force-fed milk and honey now you think well okay it's a bit uncomfortable but that's not the worst thing in the world i've drank lots of milk and i've probably had my fair share of honey usually on toast the problem is milk and honey if you eat enough of it will cause the most horrific and explosive diarrhea and if it's trapped within an enclosure the condemned person had more than milk and honey smeared all over him. Now, once they're covered with their own excretia, then the bugs, the insects, the small animals would come out, attracted by the stench, the rot, the sweetness of the honey, and the person would end up dying, and it could take up to a week to a week and a half, Sometimes they died due to lack of water. In other cases, they would die of exposure. Or the insects would literally eat them alive, climbing into their ears, up their noses, down the back of their throats, up their rectum, down the end of their uh, other area. So this is a nasty, nasty way to die. And yet at the very beginning, you think, well, this will never work. But it worked, and it worked for thousands of poor people back in the day now if you go back far enough there is another awful awful punishment and it was called the sack it actually had a a name uh, something like poena cooliae and it, it was a very specific type of execution and a one that was particularly unpleasant and it was created by the romans most people believe and it was a way to kill somebody that was close to you uh, maybe you were a a rich roman maybe even uh, a caesar and you knew someone was going to challenge you for your position and often people in positions of power in ancient Rome would need, would need they claimed, to kill their parents or their children or their brothers and sisters. And the way many did it was the Puena Culei. Now, the person that you wanted rid of was sewn into a leather sack and you would put a whole pile of other creatures in there with you a dog, some put monkeys in there, wild monkeys with big, savage teeth, snakes. And then, when it was all sewn up, the bag was then thrown into a lake or the sea. And apparently, the creatures inside would go crazy trying to get out and would bite and bite and bite and bite and bite anything in sight, mainly the human being that was in there with them, And if the animals didn't finish them off, they were 20 feet down in a lake or into the sea and they would automatically drown. As far as we know, not one person ever survived that particular form of torture. There was another thing called Strapado, and I know it sounds like something you'd maybe give a go to if you were at a bondage club just for the night, but it was just not anything you'd want to think about it's a horrible torture and it doesn't even end in death it ends with a human being in a complete mess a total mess if you were going to carry out strapado whoever you were willing to torture would be strung up by the wrists behind the head this is a horrible angle and it guarantees that your shoulders will dislocate if the shoulders didn't dislocate then they'd add weights to your legs until they till they did and you'd hear the noise and it would be sickening now this cropped up during the Spanish Inquisition, which was not, of course, just Spanish. The Inquisition spread right across Europe, across France, across Great Britain too. And in some countries around the world right now, Strapado is still used to get information from people. Now, once you have had this torture, your life can never be the same again. Your shoulders pop out regularly. And, yes, people have survived it, but the quality of their life from that day on was just not worth having. Now, I have to say, I have heard of the phrase white torture, and I just presumed it meant a torture against anybody whose skin colour was the kind of pinky colour that mine is. But that is not true. It's far worse than that. It's essentially Uh, I suppose you would call it sensory deprivation, where you have a prison cell where your clothes are completely white, you're only served white food, uh, the guards wear white, the lights are kept on 24 hours a day, nobody's allowed to talk, nobody ever sees any colour whatsoever. And this completely messes with your brain that expects to see color and it screws you up from the inside. There was a few cases in Iraq and Iran where people were subjected to this kind of torture for months at a time. And okay, the physical pain may well not be there, but the damage that's done to the human being is completely fierce you're not normal anymore many people claimed that they couldn't remember their own name they couldn't remember the names of people that they grew up with they had no idea who their parents were they didn't recognize the parents once the parents appeared and this is a delicate yet horrific way to completely destroy someone from the inside out. Let's have another... Well, it's a one you've heard of. And if anybody's ever watched the very good Braveheart movie with Mel Gibson, which was not exactly true to history, but it wasn't too far away, you will know at the end he got hanged, drawn and quartered. And... One of the worst torture methods throughout history was, of course, drawing and quartering. It's cruel, it's agonising, and the worst part of it is quite often they tried on purpose to keep the people alive. The fact that a human being came up with it and thought that would be a good idea is one of the sickest things ever to have hit the planet. There are numerous cases of it in the 1200s in England. Not Scotland, not Wales, not Ireland, but in England. And what they would do, they would tie somebody by their ankles to a horse. And then that horse would drag whoever is going to be executed to the gallows. And then they would be hanged. And then they would be disemboweled, their stomach opened so that all of their entrails would fall out. Some, if they really wanted to make a statement, would be beheaded right there. And then afterwards, they would be quartered, their body literally hacked into four pieces, and again, in some cases, they didn't even need to hack them with a knife or an axe. They would simply tie an arm and a leg to a horse on each side, four horses running in four directions, the same thing would happen. This was usually given to people who had committed treason and although it was happening in the 1200s, it took them till 1867 before it was abolished. All that time, people were suffering that horrific fate something else we've known about we know that people get burned at the stake we've heard it many times in a, a thousand stories many of them of course here on Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales and yet there is another form of a similar punishment known as the grid iron now this was essentially what you would see if you went to uh, a big barbecue it's a grill but for roasting human beings it's a long iron grid uh, over the top of a fire and coals sometimes people would be basted in oil first to make sure that they were broiled properly and then they would be rotated slowly by a handle on each end where two servants would turn them slowly to make sure that they were totally cooked. Now, I know when we spend that amount of time trying to end somebody's life, you would think, well, they're going to eat him, aren't they? Well, they never did. They never did. Instead, they would take the cooked, still hot body and hurl it to the dogs and most of the rulers of the time had hunting dogs that would be very grateful for such a fine feast. Now we know that getting about to torture people can be a problem yet in China they came up with the answer to executions on the move. They created execution wagons Yeah, essentially a big wagon or a van that made killing people really easy and quite efficient. Now, China has the most executions of any country in the world. It has this last year and for many, many years before. There's a lot of crimes in China that are punishable by death and not just murder, or rape, although they are punishable by death, you could also be executed for committing fraud, especially tax fraud, if you set a building on fire. If you're a prostitute, you could be executed. And because so many people need executing, and they don't want the expense of dragging them from the provinces where they live all the way to a big city, knowing how huge China actually is they send around an execution wagon and it's got a bed on there with restraints to tie people down they got boxes of drugs that if injected into your vein will kill you and they look a bit like i suppose what we had in britain for many years a vehicle called a black mariah we used to call them a big black dark van, the doors open, in go any criminals and they're taken to the police station, but not in China, because these execution wagons have been about for close to 20 years and they've got about 40 of them, all meting out executions to those that they believe deserve it, injecting them to death. The Chinese officials have been hit by people complaining about their, the victims' human rights. But the Chinese claim, and they've said it right from the very beginning, that this is far more humane than any of the other forms of execution that they've used over the years, like beheadings with axes, even modern-day firing squads, or electrocution. They believe that what they're doing is humane. Now, to kill someone for selling their body because they're poor, I don't see anything humane about that, because you never know what may happen to you down the down the lane. You never know what you might need to do to be able to survive. Now, I remember a few years ago, one of the newspapers, I think it was actually The Sun, published a picture of some locals in a town in Spain taking a donkey up to the top of a tower and then throwing the donkey to its death for fun, for a sport and yet what they were doing was something that people have done for absolutely centuries it was probably the very first, to call it a torture, I'm not sure it is but certainly an execution method and it's Falling, it's pushing somebody off somewhere high. And what do you do if somebody causes you a problem? You say, let's have a walk along the cliff, and when when you say to them, oh, look, what's that? And they look over the edge, you give them a shove, and away they go. This is how people have got rid of family, enemies, and all kinds of people over the years. Iran still uses throwing somebody off a cliff for state executions. So it's still used, it's still out there. And many people who commit murder use that because it's the easiest way for them to feel that they can get away with it. Now, if you live in Southeast Asia, there is another impressive but evil way of taking a life. And you would be arrested for whatever your heinous crime was. And once again, in Asia, some of the crimes we would consider to be pretty lightweight and pretty marginal. And had they happened in Britain, you'd probably get a caution from a policeman or a back in the 60s a clip along the log and sent on your way. But in Southeast Asia, they get people arrested for some of the small things basic thievery, shoplifting and it may well be that they are told that they're to be executed by elephant. They're tied onto rocks, usually rocks and stones that are sharp and then elephants are trained to make sure that when they trample the individual they stamp down on their body, breaking all of their bones and taking their life. And that has to be one of the most terrific ways that you could possibly lose your life. Now, if you've ever watched Sherlock Holmes, especially the older ones, you know, the older programmes with um, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, brilliant, love all that old stuff. On one of them, I can't remember which episode it was, but they talked about someone who had lived in China and they had died the death of of a thousand cuts. And I've always thought, well, the death of a thousand cuts just must mean they get hacked to death, where you just get cut loads of times and you ultimately die. But this thing is actually called Ling Chi. And it, and it means, I suppose it means death by a thousand cuts, but if you break down the words to what they really mean, it means slicing slowly. That is what it means. And this is Uh, way of torturing and executing someone in China. Whoever has committed something wrong, they would be tied to a lump of wood, a wooden stake that's put into the ground, and little bits of skin and limbs would be removed piece by excruciating piece. And finally the very last slice would be when they took the person's head off if this was to do with love passion and desire you know somebody has committed adultery with your partner someone has run off with your wife uh, or husband they would have a final cut that would not be decapitation it would be the final cut cutting out their hearts now once again, this was used in the eight and 900s in China, so you would think, "Oh well, that's a long time. It's a long time ago." It was not banned in China till 1905. That's well over a thousand years of ritualistic madness. This is an awful thing to do to anybody. And obviously, although we do fascinate in all things grizzly we just want you to learn about these things certainly not suffer them now on a recent ghost hunt we mentioned a thing called the blood eagle which is a legendary execution from norway sweden denmark the Scandinavian countries, at a time when the Vikings were travelling everywhere. The back would be ripped open so you could see the ribs. Then the ribs would be hacked at with an axe and twisted upwards to look like wings. And then salt would be poured onto the wound and they would rip out the lungs and use the lung material to cover the ribs to make it look even more like they were proper wings. Now, some people say this never happened. It was just stories, just tales. But there is at least one story that I've heard where that actually did happen. And it may be that it was made up to terrify people. But knowing human beings, it's only a matter of time before somebody did it. So when we look backwards, the difference between a lot of the torture methods from the far past even if they do creep into the modern generations it seems torture had to be relatively simple you shouldn't need a lot of stuff to be able to do it and such was the case with a very very common torture boiling yeah i know that's what we still do with crabs lobsters prawns shellfish in general boiled alive that's what we're doing to these creatures but if you go back far enough this was probably one of the most common executions here in britain and right across the world all that was needed was a large vessel big enough to put a human being in cauldrons as usually and they would be stripped and put into a vat full of boiling liquid sometimes it was boiling oil sometimes boiling tar, and boiling water was the most common because it was the most available. Now, what they did to make it worse, if they wanted to give the most grisly of experiences, they would put somebody in a cold water receptacle and then slowly heat it up to boiling. Eventually, if a human being is in there long enough, and we're talking between an hour and two hours, the skin would be cooked and beginning to fall off the body, and somewhere in the middle of that horrific time, if you were the luckiest person in the world, you would die before that happened. Now, we've been lucky enough to travel the world doing all kinds of research and checking out the fabulous historical stories of just some of the great pirates throughout history. And you don't have to be a pirate to have encountered what many people believe is one of the worst ever tortures. And this is a torture that some people have managed to survive. It's a thing that was known as keel hauling, And yes, it was designed for people on board ship, not just pirates, ordinary sailors too. Most people who have studied this say that it was either the German Navy or the Dutch Navy that came up with it in the 1500s into the 1600s. And the idea was somebody would break the rules and an example needed to be set, so the captain of the ship would tie whoever was guilty with a rope, and then they would drag them underwater from one end of the ship to the back of the ship. And if, by good fortune, they managed to survive being dragged the entire length of the ship underwater by their heels, if they popped up and they were still alive at the other end, they were dragged back on the ship, their wounds would be looked after, and if they recovered they would be expected to continue doing the job on board ship. Now, an awful lot of people died, a lot of people drowned. How many of you could hold your breath for probably three, four, five minutes? It's asking a lot. Other people would be dragged along the bottom of the ship, that's the keel, hauled along the keel, and there were barnacles and sharp stones and... uh, all kinds of rubbish attached to the bottom of the ship, which made it almost like a piece of sandpaper. So to be ripped to pieces by all of those, even if you survived, you would never look like an ordinary human being again. You would be covered in rips and tears and scars. So that is why keelhauling is one of my horror tortures from the past that many people don't talk particularly about and they think well just from one side of the ship to the other no it isn't it's from the front of the ship right the way through to the back of the ship and if your friends were hauling you and that was often the case people that you worked with would be pulling they'd be pulling as fast as they could to give you a chance to get to the other side but what they didn't realize was the harder that they pulled, the closer to the bottom of the ship you came and the more ripped and torn to pieces you would be from all of that stuff on the bottom of the ship. So it was kind of a a catch-22 if you were trying to save your friend. I hope you find it as interesting as I do when you go back and you just look at how we have treated our fellow men, women and children. It tells you an awful lot about what human beings are all about, deep down. But let's have a proper grisly tale. Now, if ever you watch television, you will have seen many a film, many a TV series featuring ninjas. Maybe a a few computer games too. But if I put the word ninja together with shrewsbury, you would kind of think, well, What the hell? On all of the many extraordinary stories to come to me is this one featuring Shrewsbury ninjas. The shogun, or military governor of Japan in the 1600s, was a vicious warlord called Iemitsu who hated the British, particularly hated the Portuguese, because they were trying to establish better trade relations at the time, but Iemitsu believed that Japan had to be for the Japanese. Any link with the outside world should be actively discouraged. Now, his version of discouragement was to chop off the heads of any foreigner that he came across. In 1640, Iemitsu allowed 61 representatives of the Portuguese government to land and they were brought to his palace at Nagasaki. They'd come to try to persuade the shogun to reopen trade links with their country. Iemitsu said only one word, no. The Japanese ruler, for that is what he was, The emperor was little more than a figurehead. He believed that Portugal had tried to organise a Christian peasant rebellion. And that was at a place called Shimabara some years earlier. So instead of sending these diplomats away with a flea in their ear, he ordered their public beheading. So these harmless civil servants were marched before a crowd of about 4,000 people and on the stroke of midday, simultaneously, 61 Portuguese heads fell into wicker baskets. Three Englishmen, cloth merchants from Shrewsbury, came to Japan to try and buy some of their legendary fine fabric. They witnessed the beheadings, so decided to make themselves scarce, like you would. They escaped north to the small fishing town called Sasebo, where smugglers were paid to get them to one of the Ryukyu Islands. And once they were there, they sent word to the Philippines, where British vessels regularly came in and, and did business. It took these two guys from Shrewsbury, almost two years to get back home. They had spent a total of four years trying to achieve a working arrangement and had returned empty-handed, but they were lucky at least still to have their heads. Three days after their return, one of the men, David Dunaway, was found lying in his bed, his head severed, and his eyes pierced with metal skewers. The other two, Roger Friend and Simon Oliver, were more than a little concerned, for they knew that on the other side of the world, the shogun had ordered their deaths. Surely that threat carried no weight in quiet little Shrewsbury. At the funeral, Friend and Oliver were perturbed to see two Japanese men standing at the graveside, waiting for the lowering of the coffin. They were dressed in black in the fashion that we would now identify as that of the ninjas, hired assassins sent from the east. It seems that Ayametsu had the Englishman's documents, so knew where they were from, and that, in fact, these Japanese killers had arrived in Shrewsbury almost four months before the two men had got back. Roger Friend informed the local magistrate, who took it upon himself to apprehend the two Japanese, but he could find no evidence that they were responsible for the killing. The following week, Roger Friend was in his basement room when he heard his back door being prized open. Knowing the threat posed by the assassins, He carried a large sword with him as he set off to investigate. The back kitchen was a dark, foisty room with lots of places where a shadowy figure could hide. Instead of chancing his arm in the shadows with trained killers, friend bolted the kitchen door and ran out of his front door for help. He never saw the blade of the sword. He merely ran onto it, and it was so sharp his body kept running whilst his head bounced along the street. It rolled down the sloping road almost a hundred yards before coming to rest in the centre of a busy street. Torrents of blood gushed from his torso down into the primitive guttering to paint a crimson river down towards that disembodied head. When Simon Oliver heard of his colleague's murder he rushed to the magistrate for protection. Soldiers were sent to apprehend the two Japanese and expel them from the country, but they had already gone. But Oliver refused to go home in case he put his family at risk, and he chose to live on the outskirts of Shrewsbury, staying in a cow buyer and buying food from the local farmer, who he had sworn to secrecy. One morning... He looked out of that wide-open window to the old farm building and saw two, what he thought were Japanese, walking along the edge of the field towards his hideout. He quickly grabbed a sharpened axe and prepared for their attack. It seems that the assassins had no idea that Oliver was there. They were keeping out of Shrewsbury to avoid arrest and they were looking for food as he had been they sat against the wall of the byre, and they chewed away at some soily carrots. Terrified, Simon Oliver was, he sat and trembled, his palms sweating and his heart beating so loudly he was certain that these killers would investigate and murder him. It was surely only a matter of time before they discovered him. So he stood by the rotted wooden door, his axe at shoulder level, ready to take one of their heads. Seconds later, the door creaked open and into the shadows walked a figure and Oliver brought the axe down with all of his might. He felt his shoulder jar as the sharpened blade of the axe found its mark and as the body fell backwards, he stared in shock as he saw the farmer almost split in two. Looking out into the field, he saw the two killers racing towards the buyer. Oliver tried to remove the chopping axe from the old man's body, but it was firmly embedded. The more he struggled to remove it, the more it seemed to stick. So with desperation, Oliver turned to a hair fork and then ran towards his attackers, catching one of them at stomach level, lifting him off his feet until he fell back to earth with a sickening bump. The other Japanese held a sharpened, curved sword and Oliver began to run across the muddy field. Although he had a ten-yard head start, the mud held him back and the lighter frame of the assassin saw him catch up fast. Oliver fell forward into the mire and was trying to pull himself free when he glanced up to see the ninja standing directly above him. He looked up but could barely make out his shape as the sun was directly behind him and Oliver was blinded. He could see the form raise the sword above his head and in blind panic punched with all of his might into the assassin's groin. The sword was dropped and the killer fell to his knees. Oliver grabbed the deadly blade, surprised at how late it was. He was barely standing up when he brought it down on the neck of the polaxed killer. The head was instantly detached and Oliver lay in the field breathing heavily. He had survived and not only that, he'd killed the men sent across the globe to kill him. He dragged his weary body out of the mud and was walking to the roadway all set to return home and to inform the magistrates to what had happened. And then he heard a sound from the field. On turning, "'He saw the body of one of the ninjas raise itself from the ground "'and watched in dread as the headless body marched purposefully towards him. "'It held that sword in his hand, "'and Oliver stood agape as it came at him. "'He held up his hand against the barrage of blows rained down upon him. "'His hands and fingers were severed, littering the field with flesh and bone.' Finally, Oliver was on the ground, his arms merely bloody stumps, when the final blow was struck and his head fell with a splodge into a muddy puddle. The following day, the farmer's wife came upon the scene, a scene that would have been more in place in a slaughterhouse than in an idyllic country setting such as this. The authorities were soon in attendance and they found the dead farmer, the decapitated body of Simon Oliver, a Japanese killer impaled on a pitchfork, and one Japanese head. But where was the body? A search was made, but no trace was ever found of the headless torso. Over the next 180 years, there were many sightings of a headless man in the area, The story seemed to die out in the early 1800s. Yet in November 1954, Mr. and Mrs. L. Kirk from Shrewsbury were looking for horse chestnuts for their son to play conkers with when they came across a man wandering through a small copse of trees on the outskirts of the town. Thinking it was the owner of the trees, Mr. Kirk shouted out, "'Hope you don't mind just getting a few conkers for the sun.' The man didn't reply, but when Mrs. Kirk walked towards him, she screamed and passed out on the spot. When her husband revived her, she said, "'He's got no head.' She had to be treated in hospital for shock, and neither of them ever returned to the countryside." outside their own town again and just finally let me tell you a story of a man called Harry Fallon three days before Harry died he sent me someone he listened to on the radio an old wrinkled document about his great 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 grandfather Robert Fallon had travelled to America and had earned a basic living as a carpenter in and around the San Francisco area back in the 1850s. To supplement his earnings he would go into saloons and play poker. Now you've got to remember at that time the wild and woolly west was still very much that and selecting your opposition was impossible so you would take a chance. Some nights you could win a fortune from cattlemen or merchants On other evenings, you'd be fleeced by card-sharps and gunmen. But over the average week, he was well ahead. But while he was playing a game at the Bella Union Saloon, one of the other men in the game, known as Wild Eyes, pulled back the table to see an extra card on Fallon's lap. He stood up, drew his colt, and slowly pulled back the hammer. He fired four shots into Fallon's head and chest. Cheating at cards was almost as heinous a sin as stealing a man's horse or hitting a woman. Shootings were fairly common in San Francisco. So the body was simply covered up, dragged into a back room, until the undertaker and the sheriff could arrive. Rather than let it spoil the night, the blood was wiped off the chair and they shouted along the bar to see if anybody else wanted to play cards. Most people were reluctant to take a dead man's place, but one young man stepped forward, sat down, and began to deal. By the end of the evening, he was quite a rich young man, having cleaned out his opposition. The amazing coincidence was that he was Joe Fallon, the son of the man who'd been shot hours before. He hadn't seen his father for years. He wasn't even aware that he was in San Francisco. Joe Fallon returned to England after spending ten more years in America as a professional gambler. But fate certainly played a hand on that bloody night when a son filled his father's shoes. And we have hundreds of other amazing stories, and some two- and three-four-hour adventures where we travel the world looking out for the unusual, the incredible, and in so many cases, taking ordinary people and placing them into terrifying places. I hope you'll have a look around Robson's world. It is a world for you, and I hope you enjoy it. But until we are back together again with another podcast, from me, Alan Robson, God bless you and I wish you well.